Hi folks, and thanks for listening to this Tortoise Shack podcast. You know what I'm about to ask you, and I know you probably want to hit that forward 30 second button, but please don't. The Tortoise Shack is struggling, along with many other media outlets, only they have ads and sponsors and we don't. Only they're part of big networks that have big corporate owners. We are not. We are completely independent and we rely entirely on you guys to support us and keep the microphones on and the conversations that you love to listen to happening. So if you're one of the thousands of people who are listening, please consider clicking the link at the top of the podcast you're listening to right now that says patreon.com forward slash tortoise and doing that little bit of activism, the easiest bit of activism you can do on a monthly basis. Throw us the price of a cup of tea and a scone and know that you're helping a left-leaning, progressive, independent podcast platform limp on and still platform the conversations that lots and lots and lots of people are listening to. And you do get a ton of additional content for that. And all of the podcasts are available entirely plea-free. So you don't have to listen to me beg and beg, as you know, I must. So one more time, patreon.com forward slash tortoise Come on board, join the community that we've built and help us keep going. Thanks for the support. Thanks for listening. I am going to stop rabbiting on. Enjoy the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Echo Chamber Podcast. My name is Tony Groves and Martin, we've uh, we've got you talking to one of your uh, favourite guests and and uh, and someone who I occasionally uh, tolerate and, and and he occasionally tolerates me. Uh, but by the way, I just want to say it's nice to see a smile on your face, Martin. You have looked absolutely awful for the last few days. So yeah, yeah, it's been it's been a bit rough. But you know, when you're circling the drain. There's only one person you want to surf that wave with, and that's Constantine. I have to go. We're the loyalty. <laughs> yeah, that's. I don't know how intros go, but as you see, as 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 bad as they can be, this is pretty up there. Um, no, we're. Delighted to be rejoined on the podcast yet again by our friend in Colorado, our uh, our Russian, uh, Irish, Armenian friend, Constantine Gordiev. Constantine, how are you keeping? It's good. It's good, Tony. Thanks for that. And Martin, I, I will second Tony's first half. Not about how terrible you looked before, but how lo- well you look in this day. <laughs> <laughs> Anything short of flatline looks yeah. great these days. Now listen, I've endured that age too. So hey, <laughs> this is this is like a, a bad Hollywood uh, uh, rom com or bro rom com. And this is, but anyway, look, Constantine, we don't. We have a lot of bad news to get to. Okay, so excellent. Yeah, my specialty. Let's 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 go. Let's go. I want to just set the the the, t- the table, if you don't mind. Um, obviously, the political climate in the U.S. hasn't improved at all. We've seen now um, a lot of talk in terms of. You know, uh, Donald Trump has uh, has more cases against him uh, th- than someone going through Dublin Airport. Uh, there's a lot of um, there's a, there's a lot of hassle going on. Yet none of it seems to affect him. The Washington Post had a recent poll showing that Trump beats Biden in, in an election. That's you know, if you average them out, they're all they're kind of all within that sort of thirty seven to forty two percent range. You know, n- neither neither are doing very well. And on the back of that, the U.S. economy. Is continuing to plow its plow uh, headfirst into the ground as the set, as the Fed continues to up interest rates, and banks are getting bailed out at a rate of you know we what is a tree of the la- of the of the largest ones in, of in history took place in the space of fifteen days, Constantine. It, oh, it's, uh, it's, it's spectacular, Tony. It's absolutely spectacular. We have, we're setting up ourselves for a Trump versus Leonid Brezhnev contest uh, in the elections. Uh, Leonid Brezhnev, or aka Biden these days, is happy with almost single digit soon approval ratings. 
uh, which are close to his heart rate, apparently. You know, of well. course. Well, now I want to say in his head, he made a joke about himself being 200 recently. We're not. Absolutely. I mean, this is, it's, it's actually getting pathetic. It's like, you know, living through Groundhog Day, but on acid. I mean, like, we have banks falling apart left, right, and center all around, and the Fed and the Treasury are doing the impersonations of the Greek government circa 2010, going like, nothing to see here. Everything is awesome, you know? So, yeah, you're right in terms of numbers. 2023 today, bank failures are now greater in terms of failed banks' assets than 2008 in its entirety. So far, we have Signature Bank at $110 billion down, Silicon Valley Bank at $209 billion in assets down, First Republic Bank at $229 billion down. These are second, third, and fourth largest bank failures in the U.S. history. All in one year. And I'm, so... I, to give you the comparative, the largest failure before that Washington Mutual Bank was $307 billion. The three banks that collapsed this year held in total $532 billion of assets, half a trillion dollars of assets. That's more than $526 billion adjusted for inflation in assets that were held by 25 banks that collapsed in 2008. So things are going swimmingly. It's brilliant. And when you look at the causes and drivers there, okay, if you think about this, okay, what is causing these failures? Yes, there's some of these in, in, interesting issues that also percolate into the European domain as well. Bank uh, Bond markets rot is the first cause, major one, which is also relates to European banks. We can talk about that very quickly. Deposits flight to money markets in the US out of the banks as well, as well as- Out of, out of, out of the regional banks. <laughs> Not only regional, but now we're also seeing the major banks as well losing money to the money uh, money market funds, okay? Not as fast and not in such quantities, and the outflow from the regional banks into those banks is kind of helping to powder over it, but there is a major problem in terms of deposits there. Equity markets rot is major as well, and yet to hit, but already unfolding kind of slow motion explosion is a commercial real estate crisis, which is absolutely spectacular. I mean, you're looking at the likes of the New York Manhattan real estate on commercial in office space with a 30% vacancy rate. You're looking at 30% plus vacancy rates in San Francisco. I mean, this is like just, it's it's like watching a mushroom cloud rising, not even on the horizon, but in the neighbor's yard, you know, at a very slow motion. You know, it's going to hit, you know, it's going to hurt, but when it's going to hit and how much it's going to hurt, we don't know. I, I read during the week that there are 4,800 banks, smaller banks in the US, yeah. and that at least half of them are either suffering liquidity or insolvency problems right now. Oh, all of them suffer insolvency uh, problems. It's just on how do you recognize insolvency, given the fact that the feds have pretty much now underwritten everything they could underwrite. But the problem with the banks is, as I said, there are layers and layers and layers. So if you look at bonds, for example, Government bonds are down 45 to 50%, depending on maturity, in, uh, relative to, to the start of the last year, yes? That takes a huge chunk out of the bank's balance sheets. Many banks hold 30 to 50% of their assets in U.S. government bonds, including the larger banks, by the way, as well. When interest rates rise, bond prices fall. When banks need to raise quick cash, they sell bonds, and that crystallizes their losses. 
So any excess demand for deposits means that the banks are declaring big losses. And incidentally, European banks' bonds index currently is about 47% down mm. on, 22, uh, on the start of the 2022. So the same boat exactly in Europe as well, slightly different pressures. And that's the only reason why the European banking sector is holding a little bit better than the US banking sector. Deposits. Deposits are fleeing out of the banks for two reasons. Safety concerns is minor reason, and the major one is just returns on cash. In Europe, demand deposits are moving to term deposits, so they're staying within the same bank but becoming more expensive. But at least there is no deposit flight. But in the United States, it's a different story. Demand deposits are flying out of the banks and primarily into money market funds. So as a result of that, the U.S. banks are paying more for deposits and they're getting less of depositors' cash. It's like good old Leo Tolstoy, Anna Karenina opening line, yes? Happy families are all alike. Every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. Bingo, okay? So equity market is another. That's also, if you think about equity is used to be, um, I mean, or used to be considered following the global financial crisis as the main kind of, if you want, buffer zone uh, through which the banks absorb uh, losses. But if you look at the valuations of the banks, I mean, if you look at KRES, PDR, despite the S&P regional banking ETF for the United States, down from $58.33 at the start of January 2023 to 3760 yesterday. Oopsie. 8BW NASDAQ regional banking index is down from the year's high of 122 to 80 now. And at the same time, and this is, I'm quoting you here as well, um, the... Um, if you look at Jerome Powell's uh, uh, Federal Open Markets Committee uh, statement, last one, um, he says, open text, and this is, quote, the U.S. banking system is sound and resilient, end quote. It's repeat of the same statement he made in March, Federal Open Markets Committee statement as well. So it's kind of like you have denial, uh, you know, and repeated denial by the bank regulators. We're getting into the Groundhog Day now. But the worst, with the worst, okay, to give you a little bit of credit, when we had the conversation a few months ago, we asked you, you know, was the big fear of contagion? And you pointed out the contagion was already in the system. And that was clearly already had happened. We just didn't know where the next, it was like whack-a-mole. We didn't know where the next uh, the next disaster was going to pop up. But when, when you put that into context then of um, the, the Fed deciding to underwrite everything as much as they can or use the, the larger banks to, to, to become these kind of uh, surrogates, for want of a better term, to try to try and um, make people think that there's nothing to see here. Uh, how are loan books looking then with on, on that? You know, because you know you've made the point that I've seen assets been values being re- redrawn in the UK, particularly in, in in commercial and corporate properties in 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 major cities, whereby you know they're saying the value of our asset is down twenty percent year on year, or, and, and these. So, like, how are loan books looking, Constantine? If, if, oh, they better look atrocious because you look at, at the major commercial real estate investment funds, which are defaulting on their debt. These are big boys. These are big hedge funds, big private equity funds. And they're defaulting on loans in you know hundreds of millions of dollars, including on prime real estate like downtown um, LA, downtown San Francisco, uh, Manhattan, as in like you know you know benchmark buildings. We're not talking about you know somewhere like a smaller you know like office block in you know I don't know New Jersey or somewhere. No, we're talking about the prime real estate, prime commercial real estate. So what we do not know is how much of those losses are going to be recognized by the banks and when. But beyond that, commercial real estate is a total disaster, okay? I mean, 
like it is such a disaster that if you look, for example, um, there has been analysis done last week, uh, which looked at the regional banks' exposures to commercial real estate. Fifteen most exposed commercial real estate banks in the U.S. currently hold between a third of the entire loan book and up to seventy-one percent of the entire loan book in commercial real estate loans exposure. And these 15 banks account for a combined $597 billion worth of total assets, which is basically the same, actually more, than the three banks that have failed so far in 2023. The rest of this year is going to be fun in this dimension, yes? At the same time, we have the Treasury now effectively saying they're going to be buying out their own debt from the banks, um, effectively the bond buybacks, okay, um, in order to limit the contagion from the bond markets into the bank balance sheets. And the Fed is jacking up the interest rates, creating a bigger problem on that. It's like, you know, I don't remember who said it, but somebody said it last week that um, this is a policy schizophrenia. Constantine, in, in, and of course, there's the, the debt ceiling loan, looming in the US as well. Constantine really doesn't believe in um, the... Go on, let's, let's have this chat. Okay, but do you think that the Republicans are mad enough to do this? I think they are. Uh, who knows at this stage who is mad, who is not? I mean, like, I mean, like who is madder than the other mad? Okay. The the thing about it is that they might actually pull the trigger because it does play nicely for them to trigger a massive crisis, and it will be a very big crisis because, of course, the debt ceiling in itself is a farce. Okay. Let's yeah. face it. Yes, it's currently at thirty-one point four trillion dollars. Then it includes paying for federal employees, the military, Social Security, Medicare, as well as interest on the national debt and tax refunds and all that stuff, okay? So, uh, you know, U.S. Congress usually treats that as a pro forma kind of, hey, there's a number there, we're going to hike it up and we're going to resolve the problem, okay? Um, now we have three weeks left, okay? Um, if uh, there is no resolution, and usually historically, resolution arrives in the last week before the debt ceiling deba debate, okay? Sorry, the deadline, okay? So we still have some hope there that something will be resolved. They're holding meetings. They're working. It's like European Commission as well, you know, midnight oil burning, you know, extraordinary meetings, you know, the whole weekends are being buried in fancy dinners and sitting somewhere in the offices locked up pretending that they're working. The same thing with Washington now. They all are working hard overtime and everything else over this debt limit. In the meantime, the thing that the big eggheads out of the think tanks, okay, are concocted really bizarre schemes and scams as to how can we resolve the debt ceiling problem. And it ranges from the idea of a trillion dollar coin, you know, I mean, like literally issuing a trillion dollar coin and pretending I mean, that it's worth trillion dollars. I would, I, would like yeah. a, I would like a trillion dollar coin, but please do go, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And then we're talking about then, of course, you know, is trillion dollar coin a sound money? Can we issue a trillion dollar coin and then sterilize the issuance of it? In other words, Put the money in one part of the pocket, but then take the money from the other part of the pocket, okay? And destroy a whole bunch of trillion dollar, trillion dollar worth of not trillion dollar coin. I mean, it's freaking hair raising exercise in stupidity, honestly. Yeah, you know, like it's the problem, of course, is that we're running absolutely flipping massive deficits. Deficits that are not justifiable by absolutely any reason right now in the economy whatsoever and deficits that primarily are fueling the returns to the corporations and to the wall street doing nothing on the ground for the ordinary people and ordinary families 
But if they do, but if they do cut, they want to cut the ordinary family supports. They want to cut. Well, they don't have to because right now, you know, the the reality that's what the Republicans want, and the Republicans are like, you know, like kind of, you know, I don't know, like some sort of a decomposing Santa Claus, you know, who is (laughs) just, you know, not even, you know, doesn't promise anything, but like really stinks. Okay, but apart from that, okay, you have the if you look at the Democrats themselves. They're not actually cutting anything, but they're allowing the Federal Reserve to literally devastate the families through the increases in credit costs, through the increases in mortgages costs, and so forth. So, I mean, like, look, I mean, the reality is, you know, you know, middle class and upper middle class will end up being drained in order to pay for the upper classes' uh, returns and in order to secure some sort of the compliance from the lower classes who are about to revolt. I mean... It's kind of bizarre, you know, let them eat cake, but then pretend that we're actually giving them a cake as well, you know? It seems that this week is the first week where all of these difficulties are actually beginning to feed into the market. And there is now some concerns, but it has taken them an awful long time to get to this point, Constantine. You're right, completely. I mean, it's taken us, you know, pretty much good part of the 50 years to pretend that the United States government debt is a risk-free asset. And now we're seeing U.S. credit default swaps are pricing a year credit default swaps at 833, eight times up on last year's. And that's the cost of the insuring U.S. government debt against the default, yes? The five-year CDS now implies for the United States a default probability of 1.09%. Now, sure, it's not like Argentina, where it is 109%, okay, default probability. They go into default at a certain point in time, guaranteed, okay? Yeah, sure, United States is better than that, but that's pretty scary. When well, like, I mean, the entire world, look yeah, at the, global, the global economy, and we've spoken on this podcast with you about the the de-dollarization that's occurred, but it's nowhere near where it needs to be that we that if the if the US does default on the, like, there's huge, there's huge implications. There's huge implications, by the way, simply put on commercial property in Ireland because many of those same funds are the exact same warehouse funds that that we have that that own our uh, silver boxes down on the Docklands, you know? Um, Absolutely. And you can't do anything with those silver boxes because they're so expensive to convert into any other use because they're windowless wonders, yes? For the tax evasion, basically. I couldn't so, be, uh, I was avoidance, avoidance, I, evasion. I mean. I, well, a bit of both would depend on whether yeah, I, but I'd better be on a straight line, you know, because otherwise IDA might complain. Yes. I, I was I was down at one the other day and I was looking across and there was a company that I knew had, had sought uh, redundancies from its staff and on the top of its giant tower it had built a, a, a garden for everybody and I just thought you know you're letting go staff when you're putting carbon emissions are reduced are you kidding me you know you put a little bit of grass and a couple of sheep on top of the roof you know of the of the building and then you know but I we mean, are the idea the idea probably give them a grant for that though Constantine sure this this time last year we did have rumblings about that the ratio of where we were putting money into building in this country was all going into offices in the, yeah. into industrial so we are, again, have our arses hanging out in a world market where industrial properties are going to drop in value and our arse is hanging out further than anybody else's. Look, Martin, a bit, a bit of a correction. Yeah, so commercial real estate is a wide sector, yeah? Yeah. Like when you're talking about industrial, industrial actually is not doing too, too bad. bad. It's the office, yeah. It's the office shit, okay? Um, and in the office space, like last year, I remember you correct, you know, you and I actually spoke about this. 
um, because I remember I came in March last year to to Ireland, and I was stunned to see it was the first after the pandemic, you know, years uh, to see so much office building activity. I kind of said, you know, to a friend of mine who is a developer, you know, a big developer, I said, you know, what the hell are you doing building freaking offices in Dublin? This is the only city I can see. London doesn't. You know, Paris doesn't. Nobody builds offices anymore. You know, you are. And the way he described it is he said, it's an arbitrage game. And it's an arbitrage game solely funded on the back of the EU environmental regulations. The only reason Ireland is building office spaces is because all of the multinationals need to convert their existing office spaces into the A-rated, energy-rated office spaces. Conversion of the old 1970s blocks is extremely expensive. So as a result of that, it is cheaper to build new stuff, and they're building that in documents. So we defaced Leafy, to be honest. Okay, mm. it looks awful. All the way from my from my neck of the woods, from the uh, from pool bag all the way up, it looks god awful. It has no character. It has no personality. It's boring, mm. and it's all these you know kind of five six story glass boxes, as you described it correctly. You know. So that's where there is a big problem. So once we have saturated that market space, the rest of the commercial real estate on the office sides is going to be effectively worthless. Which is interesting because we noticed pressure coming on for in the build up to Brexit, there was a lot of talk of Dublin Port and how the change would have to have. And the, and the state has a lot of land in Dublin Port. And there's a lot of people saying, well, yeah, we'll 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 take that and put more glass boxes on it. Thank you very much. In, in, in 2003, back in the days, you know, when John Minahan was still the uh, senator for the mm. Progressive Democrats, I remember myself, him, and a couple of people from PDs were having a conversation. And that's why I actually said, you know, take the pullback and redevelop the whole thing. Redevelop into a mixed development. Back in the end, there was organic demand for some offices, but also developed into residential, okay? Mm. Scale it up away from the shores in terms of the uh, density. So along the shores, you have slightly lower density, and then it rises as well mm. towards the pullback, towards the part of pullback where my house now is, okay? So, I mean, it was, a, you know, to me, it still is a great idea. To me, to have in the city center, smack in the city center with no capacity of roads anywhere around it, a major port and shipping containers or driving com containers, um, it's it's atavistic, it's idiotic. You know, you're burning too much gas, you're creating too many emissions, it is noisy, it's noise and traffic pollution, and it's in the city center. So yeah, we need to convert uh, the Dublin port into a much more sustainable... But, but as you said, a mixed use though. Oh, no, no. I, like at this stage, it's pretty much should be probably, I would say, like 90% residential. Yeah, I'm going to bring this back a little and I'm going to say, okay, there's a lot of negative signs out there in the economy at the moment, but there are a couple of positive signs in that the employment market has stayed, buoyed constantly. Now, how much of that has to do with the amount of people that have checked out of the US employment market? <laughs> you got it. Okay. And this, uh, and so ec economics of labor markets are kind of a sub-discipline within economics. And there's a lot of economists who work primarily on those things. Where do people move? How do they move in terms of, you know, the jobs? Are they in the job market? Are they searching for the job? Are they not? And there are definitions there. Unemployment rates in the United States have been really benign and also in Ireland as well have been really benign. But when you start scratching underneath the, the surface, what you are discovering is that a lot of this, um, you know, low unemployment is generated by a couple of factors. Factor number one, women are using an opportunity in the post-pandemic world 
to combine more to combine more efficiently and effectively workplace engagement and home engagement. So in other words, because of the remote work, because of work from home becoming more acceptable and a hybrid working models becoming more acceptable, women's labor participation actually has improved, which is great. That's fantastic. By the way, we, if we zoom back in our history, in Irish history, to the beginning of the 1990s and the a genuine, organic, real Celtic tiger boom in the economy in, in Ireland, it was the largest done. factor the domestic factor that drove that real Celtic tiger, not the fake one, not the Celtic Garfield of the noughties when we just built the homes for home builders, you know, um, but the organic 1990s one was actually women coming back into the workforce in Ireland on the foot of lower taxes, more opportunities for the employment and so forth. So that, that was awesome. If we can re regenerate that, that is really good. So it's not to discount that. But what is happening is effectively there's a swap. There's a Kind of, you know, um, prime age, what we call males, whose labor force participation is dropping or staying very low, depending on the country, depending on the age cohort, as in by historical standards. And the women participation, which is slightly rising, which is, there's a little bit of a good news, but there is a pretty bad news on the male labor force participation. So as a result of that, in the younger cohorts, the labor force participation is staying still historically low by historical standards. The big debate right now amongst the labor economists is straying outside of labor economics. And it's actually is a debate about, well, how the hell can they do so? I mean, don't they have, you know, rents to pay? And our understanding in the United States now is that they don't have rents to pay. That the United States demographics today are seeing 40-year-old males living with their parents in granny's basements, more so than they are in Italy. Zoom back again in history to the 1990s when the United States, UK, and the societies that are based on home ownership were making fun of the likes of Italy, where the younger males stayed longer term with their families and relied on family supports in order to afford certain quality of life, yes, for a longer period of time. We now in the United States have a larger proportion of the under 50-year-old males who are living in their parents' home than Italy has. Eh, well, to some extent, there are fewer under 50-year-old males in Italy as well because of their demographics of aging. But also, it's kind of like, it's a yeah, big, but, you know, but, the joke but, of the but, past but is on us. You know? gen generation stuck as well, in, in a way. Yeah. Well, I've one interesting point to make on it, and then I want to actually go to change tack for a little bit. But there's also, we see that phenomenon in Ireland whereby, you know, there's the... the most recent boast is, you know, more people at work than ever in the history of state yet again. Of course, we've a grown economy, we've a, we've a growing um, population, so you would hope so, um, that that's the case. But we also seen another spike recently, and I know Kieran Nugent pointed out, of adding an additional, I think it was 116,000 working poor. You know, yeah. if you've, so, you know, like... It, and, uh, and by the way, when you look at the actual indi individual consumption... Mm. Um, in, the, in Ireland, that has historically deteriorated rather than improved. We are getting worse and worse relative can to we, the, can, of the I, European. I'm, I'm aware that I'm aware that me and you have had this conversation loads of times, but lots of listeners might be hearing that for the first time. What does that mean when 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 we? So say basically, is you know how much we spend on the goods and services um, after we pay taxes, after we pay for the likes of, say, for example, housing and so forth. In other words, when you take away necessities, yes, what can we afford in this life? 
Uh, in terms of the, and by the way, bare necessities, we're talking about food mm. and we're talking about shelter, effectively, okay? Um, and, uh, you know, this is measured by the Eurostat across the uh, all the European countries uh, on a consistent basis. Um, and so we get the data for that. And I don't remember right now the numbers, but Ireland used to be in the top three, four countries. And uh, we have gradually now slipped towards the middle I think the la I think the last time we were somewhere around uh, nearly nearly depending on what way you read it someone said like somewhere between 14th and uh, 11th yeah. and 14th that's yeah so within the EU somewhere around the middle mm. okay so when you think about the vast gap between the officially measured gross domestic product or GDP based mm. economy on per capita basis we are like the re second richest after Luxembourg I mean Luxembourg beats everyone you know because hey you know like they count as the part of their GDP, the income of the French people uh, who commute into Luxembourg to work, you know. So I mean, it's kind of insane. As you should. Um, yeah. Well, of course, you know. <laughs> uh, in Ireland's case, you know, we just count, you know, the pretend believed income that the multinationals, you know, add here as well in Ireland. So as a result of that, when you think of that gap, that's actually how you measure that gap. Mm. If you take away things that are necessary to sustain your life in physical bare living minimum. You know, then you kind of what's left is what you're working for, really. In this, so, what, so what we're saying is like basically, folks, you know, if you're struggling out, yeah, but if you're struggling out there right now and you're paying a high rent in in, in Dublin, you've less money, even though you might have a really good yep. salary, and you've less money than someone who a few years ago had uh, had was earning less money but didn't have the the cost of living and issues that you have, and that's where Ireland has slipped backwards. It brings me to the sort of the 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 question I did want to ask you. I don't know if you if you read or saw or, or involved yourself at all in the speech by President Michael D. Higgins and his view on economists uh, and how they've played a role in many of the problems of the glo of the world uh, economy and the infinite growth model. And some of it, I you know, some of it he's it's kind of repetitive. He said it before. It's not a lot of it's not new. He's he's he you know he just likes to be he likes to quote certain uh, philosophers and poets, and he throws them all in, and and that's all. And you know, much better, much better um, orator than I'll ever be. No, no doubt about it. But on on he makes some good points about what what we would call the 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 heterodoxy or the the normal uh, the normal uh, economic models but you always speak with such great pride about your students and your uh, and the work that they do and how it fits in in the modern world so can i ask you first of all what you thought of 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 what michael d says and do you think that it it's not you don't see that in your classrooms um no i look i mean first of all i wouldn't be a scholar of his entire speech it's pretty significant in size okay mm. um i've kind of seen the debate around it and i'm of two views there are some things that he highlights that are relevant and i do see that okay um i mean like there is a certainly a problem within the mainstream economic profession which is even more significant amongst the macroeconomists rather than microeconomists in terms of the reliance on uh you know nice looking fancy uh, fun to work with models uh, that are highly unrealistic, uh, but also, of course, on the um, herd mentality, uh, on the crowd mentality within the profession itself. And there are valid criticisms that all of that has been over the years led to the um, economic profession downplaying, perhaps, or maybe not so much downplaying on the purpose, but at least partially ignoring really major issues of the everyday life. And in particular, 
things like market crisis, including the global financial crisis that I have been, you know, banging on about for a long time, but also environmental crisis, um, you know, climate change, but beyond climate change, things like, say, for example, the uh, destruction of natural capital, uh, destruction of the habitats, destruction of the environment more broadly, and so forth. So, I mean, social problems as well have been um, kind of secondary in a lot of economic work and the body of the economic research and teaching. Uh, the, on the other hand, I must defend some of the people um, in my profession. Um, remember, economics combines people like Steve Keen, for example. Uh, in Ireland, it brings people like Stephen Kingsley, just to mention one person, okay? But there's many more who actually do try to integrate those issues into our um, classrooms. Um, I can tell you that in programs that I teach in, in Trinity, uh, we actually are formally assessed as the course directors and designers um, and lecturers in a course on how much of a component of the course goes to what we call ESG, environmental, social, and governance risks and considerations. Um, I mean, like every course I teach, whether it is in the United States um, or in Ireland, um, involves the ESG. Uh, one of the biggest European frameworks uh, for the uh, environmental, social, and governance finance um, research uh, is uh, run by a group of Irish scholars, um, including some of my colleagues in Trinity, like Brian Lucy, for example. Uh, so there is, you know, I, I will be in Ljubljana in three weeks' time presenting at the conference, uh, which is a European circuit conference on the uh, ESG finance that is uh, launched, that was launched and organized by uh, people like Brian Lucy. Uh, so there is a lot of things that I think Michael D. Higgins is not necessarily aware of. And that's not the criticism of him because he can't be fully versed in a, what's happening in any given moment in such a big discipline field like economics. But here's what actually bothers me. And it isn't Michael D. Higgins' musings on the matter. What really bothers me is the fact that every university class almost in Ireland today is teaching ESG. This, and they teach ESG that, and they teach environmental, and they teach social and teach governance and so forth. And it takes pesky, small, underfunded, totally not mainstream publication like the ditch to dig up dirt on misgovernance in Ireland. And it takes a small group of local activists to unearth evidence of systemic massive environmental destruction in the country. What bugs me is not Michael D. Higgins pointing the potential failures or issues with economics as a profession, whether he's right or wrong about that, it's secondary. What bothers me is that in our academia, economists and non-economists, we are all going collectively silent. There is not a peep, not a word about the crap that happens on the ground. We have conferences about whistleblowers that academics are presenting at, at which there are no invited whistleblowers. I'm that's not kidding thing. you. I that's was shocked thing. to learn that. Okay, I I'll tell you that because I know I was there last year. World Whistleblowing Day in Ireland. Nobody marks World Whistleblowing Day in Ireland. Not a single minister will mark it. Not a single government person will acknowledge it. But Martin, that's cool for them. They should be venal like that because that's their self-preservation. 
it's every academic who is punching themselves in the chest going this is esg we're all about the governance we're all about anti-corruption and everything else where are they because it's but the politicians at least not claiming that they're going to do something about it. Well, uh, okay but you can only you I'm quite sure there are people who are putting out reports who are, or who are mentioning all of this, but really and truly, Constantine, the prevailing orthodoxy within the, the narrative of the press is right-wing economists. But it's not, it's not right-wing or left-wing. Look at, for example, libertarian think tank, like, say, for example, Cato or Timbro in mm. Sweden, yes? They are doing work in terms of the recognizing the importance of whistleblowing. They're doing work in terms of recognizing the fact that in properly governed systems, capitalism works better than in poorly governed systems. It's not about left or right. It's about Ireland being a consensus-driven society in which the herd mentality or the crowd mentality dominates. We're all supposed to don on green jerseys. Look, I'm actually wearing one right mm -hmm. now. You know, just to confuse everyone, you know. I mean, we're all supposed to wear green jerseys and defend our own little patch of grass. I mean, from whom? From ourselves. Because if you look at destruction we're causing to the, to the environment around ourselves, this is not about even climate change. Yeah, climate change is huge, very important, can be overridingly so important, okay? Look at the quality of water in the rivers in Ireland. Look at the quality of fishers in Ireland. Look at the fish kills, massive fish kills that the Irish authorities are catching, finding industrial enterprises for, and nothing is being done beyond that. Where all of this ESG stuff that we are teaching our students in classrooms, where all of that ends is in that silence. It mm. all ends in academic nice papers, deeply researched, fantastically written, and very insightful it's, about the theory and the empirical evidence it, of it, the whistleblower. And it's, not a single whistleblower is given a pension in Ireland. Not a single whistleblower is given an award for doing the right thing in Ireland. They all are being effectively taken out to the back of the shed and shot in the head by the official establishment. And and I, you know, I'm gonna I, I, look. Thank you for saying so much of that now because I think a lot of people don't don't believe us when we say that there is that kind of. Uh, I call it often the, the cult of civility, where you know it's almost it's more it's more in, impolite to point out that someone has done something that shouldn't have been done. Um, because uh, be, as we are destroying our own people. Yeah. Those whistleblowers are doing the right things mm. by law, by society, by the environmental, social, and governance. But, but you'll have but you'll have some. And we are destroying them. Someone will say this is not civility. That is barbaric action. Um, it's the opposite of civility. There's the one issue that, that they'll point and go, well, we have this, you know, here's the here's the international index and Ireland is a great place, you know, so there's no transparency. Ireland says everything's grand and we're after setting up a new mental health uh, resource for whistleblowers. And like, Mar Martin, you, you've yeah, probably... Look, Tony, I work I know, with I know. the best whistleblowers in the country yes. and I work with them. And I can tell you beyond a shadow of a doubt that what's going on within the state, particularly within SIPO, is utterly utterly unacceptable mm. utterly unacceptable i mean michael martin accused people of politicizing sippo well oh my god you'd want to see the way sippo deals with whistleblowers and it and, is 100 political and they will be seeing it soon once we can once we can put all our ducks in a row and, and absolutely and, and, i am lining sippo up for a kick and it's never had before constantly i didn't uh so apologies now if this is a a, a, a an awkward question for you and but i think 
something occurred to me while we were chatting and you, you're a man who's been across the globe. You've taught everywhere. We opened this on talking on the US. We know that Putin's illegal war continues in Ukraine. We know that um, the the sentiment towards Russians has, you know, has has really gone to the, that kind, kind of mentality. Do you mind me asking, because you're a few years now, you've been in a couple of parts of the US now. What do you? What is your America like, and how and how have you been treated, you personally? Look, I can't complain. I mean, my colleagues and I work very closely. For example, one of my best colleagues, um, in particular, she works for administration side of the university. Um, I work on the academic side of the university, but we work very closely. We were having a call earlier today, conference call. She's from Ukraine. Um, I mean, my daughter's best friend um, is a kid who is half Ukrainian. His mom lives just down the road from us. His family lives down the road from us. Um, this is, you know, the whole point of this horrendous absolutely war that Russia is waging in Ukraine is that it is utterly unnecessary. We as people can get along and we as people can live together and work collaboratively and cooperatively. So I cannot complain in my life here um, I encounter people at work and amongst the friends who obviously selectively biased, of course, but they're biased in the direction where I can communicate with them and I can interact with them. In other kind of venues in life, I genuinely get along fairly well with people from all different kinds of walk, walk of life because I'm not ideological anymore. I used to be ideological, but I kind of matured, I think, or became softer over the period of time and, you know, just experiencing different can I, can, I say, can, I, can I say you has you kind of had the good sense to put the labels down and just work work on the subjects yeah I kind of I set aside completely the labels so when you set aside the labels you find yourself being able to have a communication meaningful and good and interested in getting communication with people who vote for Trump and people who vote for the Green Party and people who vote for Biden and people who don't vote at all because you don't act judgmental. You try to understand them, you try to hear them, and you try to find lines of, you know, if you want, not necessarily agreement, but lines where you can work together and father your either meaningful work engagement, but also in, on a personal level, a conversation and the dialogue um, in terms of the what's happening, you know, in around us, what, you know, ideas are, what are the potentials for change are. So one of my best friends, for example, we hike together all of the time in the mountains, you know, um, he is an Irish lad, you know, um, and he is a high school teacher, and he would be way left of center in terms of his points of view, traditional, uh, very honest uh, trade unionist, uh, not trade unions from the point of view of power, but trade unions from the point of view of how do we promote the profession? How do we support the professional development? How do we support professional productivity and things like that? So we have fantastic conversations between ourselves um, and we agree and disagree. This is a type of the, you know, to me, this is the kind of strength that got us as human species to the point where we are at the top of the food chain. And it's disappearing. That civility of the conversation is disappearing in the um, world around us. And it's true in Ireland. It's true also in the United States. Fortunately, I'm kind of being able to stay within that space where I actually can have a meaningful conversation. I can agree and disagree with people without disrespecting them. And I get the same feedback from them back. It's when the people become pushed 
to the point of no return. When people feel they're powerless, they're made powerless by powers around them. When someone superimposes onto them is when they react violently and destructively back. Um, unfortunately, our political system, governance system is going in that direction more and more and more. And that dialogue, the conversation disappears out of our life. And that's why we have this polarization, political polarization. That's why we have this Brezhnev versus Trump contest, you know? I think you're right. And I think that's a good place to leave it, Constantine. I will just point out one really little hopeful thing. And you and I discussed this last week. The CEO of IBM was saying that if you don't come back to the office, it'll harm your uh, your prospects. But it is women, and predominantly professional women, usually in the medical services, because that's where the growing area for professional women is. They're actually driving the decisions that are made in the world at the moment, both demographically and through their voting power. So there is hope on the horizon constantly. Of course, there is hope. Uh, I mean, absolutely, there is hope. And as you said before, the increase in participation of women, but also increase in diversity of the workforce itself is also bringing us closer and closer to the point where we start to feel that we can no longer just impose ourselves onto others. We have to communicate with others on a level which is a level playing field. And that will bring that notion of the dialogue and civility back. How fast? And is it fast enough for us to, as a species to not sink into the risk of both climate change and political disintegration that we are currently heading towards? So in other words, you talked about the circle and the drain can we escape that velocity? If we can, we will be okay. If we can't, we're not. But the only way we're going to escape that is by recognizing that that diversity, that that presence of others in our lives is actually contributive and positive to both ourselves and them as well. Thanks, Constantine. Great chat. Listen, folks, as always, thanks, thanks for Martin. This Pleasure. Is- I hope you understand how good uh, these conversations are because this man here comes in and you got to remember when he said ideologically opposed, we were very ideologically opposed for many a year. And yet I would say, uh, I, I, I'll go so far as to say your good friend Constantine now and, and has been very good to, to continue to talk to our listeners. And I hope everybody appreciates uh, the, that you come on all the time. But you know, to See, go I there. Think, I, I think we're missing a trick. We should be putting Constantine on stage to do public lectures. Oh. And then, <laughs> and then charging people five quid a piece. <laughs> we'll split the door 60 40, which, and we'll take the hassle Constantine. We, we can call it something catchy, like, you know, I don't know. Let's see. Uh, Northside Book Festival. (laughs) (laughs) The the Cabra Book Festival, folks, is launching. Oh, no, 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 no. Let's not have a Southside enclave on the north side. Let's actually go north side. (laughs) From the shopping center. We're going to play out now to north side, north side. (laughs) See you, folks. Take care. Bye-bye. Tony and Martin, Martin and Tony, speaking to interesting people only. It's the Echo Chamber Podcast. Subscribe now on Patreon.